This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Today on American Enough, we dive into what it actually means to be an American ally. Not because there's any sort of standards that we prescribe for our friends around the world to qualify to be our partners in crime or our friends or just our collaborators when we're trying to balance the scale of geopolitics, but because specifically in this day and age, the the tone and the positioning that we have seen from America's leadership at the federal level has called into question the trust that we have with other nations that we once assumed would always take a bullet for us. And it's also called into question how our allies strategically align themselves when they aren't fully aware or don't have full visibility into the strategy and rhetoric of the nation's president. On Tuesday, we know that President Trump broke with the U.S. tradition of using a measured tone when it comes to discussing the threat posed by North Korea, and also broke with the longstanding tradition of being measured when it comes to discussing the use of our own nuclear capabilities. The level of intensity not only rattled residents from coast to coast within the United States, but it certainly drew the ire of North Korea's leader, North Korea's military, and several of our own allies. In fact, President Trump said that North Korea had best not make any threats against the United States, which is just a very artful and delightful way for any leader of the free world to speak. The American military presence on Guam, which is what North Korea is targeting right now, actually consists of two American bases, Anderson Air Force Base and the naval base Guam. And it's only about 2,200 miles southeast of North Korea, and it also houses American bombers, submarines, and other ships in the Pacific Ocean. So for this president to not only gloss over the fact that there's an imminent threat to a U.S. territory, and but not also to not speak uh, to any element of our military arsenal publicly in that territory is pretty frightening. Um, but his rhetoric has also created a shift in the way that our allies are looking at us. And it sort of begged the question of how the doctrine of nuclear deterrence that this country has practiced ever since the tragic events um, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II have literally been espoused to the world. So to dissect and discuss elements of this, we have today on the pod um, my dear friend um, and someone who has strong experience understanding how words shape foreign policy, Kevin Sammy. Kevin Sammy, thank you for joining American Enough. It's great to be here. Thanks, Vikram. Absolutely. Um, before we begin, do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and and how you fit into the foreign policy um, uh, tone setting of this country in the past? Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, in my post-Obama administration life, I, I have uh, focused on communications work and strategy and speech writing uh, in the private sector, mainly uh, in, in tech. Uh, but my Obama administration footprint consists of speech writing for multiple cabinet members, uh, most recently uh, the, the latest piece of that of which was at the Pentagon for the Secretary of Defense, which, as your listeners may know, is uh, the head honcho of the Department of Defense, uh, uh, including the, the leader of the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and uh, the military uh, side of, of American, uh, the American Armed Forces, and, and is the, the principal military operations advisor uh, for the President of the United States. That's actually, I'm glad that you, that you 
painted that picture for us because um, I think it's important to know right now, uh, and maybe you could tell us, when we hear the president speak um, about another country um, or about the American values that are embedded in an action that could affect others around the world, um, how is that? How, how are those words chosen? When he is speaking, um, is the Secretary of Defense, uh, is the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, several of the other folks that make up our security apparatus, are they informing his ideas of, of how to speak on an issue? Um, do they typically collaborate beforehand? Uh, how does that play out when you have all these different actors who are all part of the same government and the same administration, um, but they have their own megaphones in their own right? Sure, sure. So it's a good question. So I, I think there's there's a couple uh, perspectives to keep in mind here. So one is the actual words and the content that's being conveyed on behalf of America, whatever mouthpiece it comes from, right? But your question, which is a really important one, was is on structure, is on the basically the infrastructure of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security. Now, um, the president of the United States is elected by the people and is the leader of uh, he's the commander in chief, a term that uh, everyone knows, even if they don't totally fully grasp what uh, the, you know, the, the meaning of the concept. Uh, he is is the the it's the buck stops with with him currently a him uh, when it comes to uh, American armed forces. And so, um, of course, there's an enormous amount of complexity and and organizing and infrastructure that comes uh, with that responsibility in terms of actual planning, in terms of troops that are active duty reserves, uh, the civilian employees and contractors that are involved with actually making the bombs and bullets uh, that are used by our armed forces. Uh, my old boss at the Pentagon used to say uh, uh, in his speeches, the Pentagon doesn't doesn't manufacture a single, a single bullet. You know, so they're, they're, but those paychecks that are going to those employees at Lockheed Martin and Boeing and other places that are manufacturing weapons platforms all come from the Department of Defense. So that's the, the answer to, that, to your question is, is uh, there's an incredible amount of coordination uh, on the policy front um, from everything from the thinkers at the Pentagon to forward operating bases uh, uh, in the Middle East or abroad um, that that is lined up before uh, somebody like the president um, is supposed to be uh, conveying um, uh, any notion or any position of, of the U.S. Armed Forces. And so I guess a good segue to, to further our conversation here is right now that tie that has existed in the United States as long as uh, the United States has, has has been a coherent and cohesive country has been severed by this current president. It, he's basically completely uh, uh, neglecting um, that that uh, infrastructure. And and I'm glad you went there because um, this week we heard from a spokeswoman at the uh, U.S. Department of State. Um, our principal uh, diplomatic voice to the rest of the world, uh, that it's not that the White House speaks with one voice and the Department of State and Defense speak with other voices, but that America speaks with one voice. Um, and that, you know, it should be enough to know to the American people that this is the a unified American stance was essentially her argument. Um, but I guess my question for you, Kevin, as someone that has helped craft the language that goes into how we talk about our own foreign policy positioning, is that in the, the almost within 12 hours, I might have the timing wrong, or at least 24 hours of the president speaking with such uh, bluster and and sort of forceful 
fear and trying to attempt, sorry, try and strike fear in the hearts of the North Korean leadership. His secretary of state went on to say that Americans should have nothing to worry about, that they should sleep safe tonight. Um, trying to cool things down, I believe, quote, he said that nothing that I have seen or that I know would indicate the situation has drastically changed in the last 24 hours. Um, that was a secretary of state also part of this apparatus. But then separately, another American who speaks on behalf of America, according at least according to that State Department spokeswoman, said that, and his, this one, Sebastian Gorka, um, a, trop, a top Trump aide, ends up saying that Tillerson was not actually speaking for the White House and that we should listen for the president. Um, and so not to really belabor the point, since you laid out that there's important process to kind of crisply focus um, and sharpen America's position with consensus in-house before you speak out loud. But can you just tell us why it would be more American or un-American to listen to one voice versus another? Shouldn't all these voices be stitched together, given that that was the framework that the State Department spokesperson used, that, that this is the American position, and yet we have all these disparate uh, contradictory statements? I mean, the short answer to the question is, is yes, they, they should be stitched together. Um, they should be stitched together, not just uh, to, to for you know internal clarity from a running the government standpoint, from an operational standpoint. Uh, you would think that everyone's singing from the same sheet of music that when, you know, God forbid you say bomb here, uh, the bomb goes to, uh, to, you know, bomb X target instead target Y blows up instead, you know, you'd hope that they're stitched together in, internally. And, and so externally, when you see such a clear division, such a clear distancing from one agency to the other, this is all within the same branch of government, right, which is what makes this right. so uh, unnerving. So, so the short answer to your question is you would hope they were stitched together. Now, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, it, it, it's really difficult to suss out uh, any kind of legitimacy from some statements these days. Uh, of course, I think, that's an objective assessment any reasonable person would would make. But it's important to note this: the fact that the executive branch is contradicting itself over and over. Let, let's take out State Department v. White House. This is the same branch of government, and leaders within this branch of government are contradicting themselves. So, should they be speaking, singing from the same sheet of music? Absolutely. Are they not? Definitely. I mean, are they? Definitely not. And it used to be enough for uh, America to speak with one voice to the world, or at least it used to be um, kind of protocol enough for this country to allow the sec Secretary of Defense um, to do to convey the message he or she wants to convey used to be enough for the State Department to convey diplomatic um, channels, sorry, engage in uh, diplomatic channels that they wanted to engage in. Um, but it seems like this blurring of an American message, uh, and let's take away any biases that, that you know, any of us might have about this president, um, and just uh, analyze the fact that these messages have blurred um, individuals have contradicted other individuals, as you said, within the same team, within the same government. Uh, let's just talk about the blurring of rhetoric here. What is the – are there dangers if we have a blurred message that's going out to the North Koreans? I mean maybe someone who's new to government or, or liked how forceful Trump um, was could easily just push back and say – yeah, I mean, there are all these other staffers, but they're not the president of the United States. So that's the only message that matters, right? Right, right. I mean, this is really – this is the key on which uh, uh, electoral 
the electoral aftermath of something like this and the actual governance or policy aftermath of some, of, of something like this uh, might not match up, and, and it's really a dangerous thing. And so, um, so let me answer your question by speaking to um, how important it is, basically, that that uh, a message is, is st stitched together seamlessly and um, doesn't have this kind of incoherence. Uh, I think we should zoom out. I think we should take a broad view of the United States in the context of global politics, uh, both from a security standpoint as well as a diplomacy standpoint. If we zoom out, there's one thing that is has been true ever since the uh, the end of World War II, definitely, and the and the advancement and growth of the American Navy in particular. An open society is what makes the United States strong. A closed society is what makes our adversaries like Iran and uh, North Korea and China and Russia strong. So let me say that again. An open society is what makes the United States strong. A closed society is what gives leverage to to basically non-democratic uh, um, adversaries. You know, folks that that uh, we have tensions with uh, here and there across the across the globe. The primary vehicle in which the United States communicates its intentions and decisions is the head of its civilian-run government. That is a categorical difference between the United States and those other powers that be around the world that I mentioned. When you have that particular mouthpiece basically running amok, you, what you're having is a short-circuiting of how the rest of the world understands the primary military power on the face of the planet. So that's something that 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 is uh, is the whole ball game here. So again, just to boil this down, when you have the mouthpiece of the American military and the American government really uh, uh, misfiring, short circuiting, not making any sense, not ma not making rational sense, or uh, even if you would feel this is rational, you know, if his statements, his blustery statements are rational, it's contrary to how the United States has operated for decades, for generations. So that contrary um, change by itself is noteworthy to everyone in the world. And what it's doing is it's undermining the way in which the United States conveys its power and uses its power. So it, it's a in, – in a much more basic way, uh, the way the United States signals its intentions and retains its positions is fracturing. So everyone, both internally, we're seeing that when we see the State Department and we see the American military, which, frankly, this is a very interesting dynamic. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and the American military is counter-positioning to the civilian who is elected to run the government, who has proven his ineptitude tenfold, right? Absolutely. So when we're seeing a fracturing within the American government, what that is trying to do is catch up to this new normal. And the rest of the world is also catching up to this new normal. And, and, and I'll end uh, the answer by saying this, Vikram, which is really what's disturbing me the most. North Korea has now found a partner in a partner to do their ridiculous uh, uh, verbal bantering with. They have found an equal, an equal, unreasonable uh, 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 world leader in which to banter with that nobody believes, that nobody takes seriously. That everybody absconds and, and sort of relegates to the, the basement of uh, um, incoherence and ineptitude when it comes to governance leadership. They found an equal in Donald Trump. And so as, as Americans, we have to ask ourselves uh, if that's what the, uh, the presidency has come to, if the Oval Office has become less legitimate than a child's playground, what does that mean when it comes to the position of American power and, and intention in the world? And I'm, I, when you say that 
North Korea found somebody to do its bidding, you mean that this makes it far easier for um, the leader of this country who has, you know, not only his regime, but prior regimes um, at the helm of that country who have long despised the United States, both its values, both its, its repeated sanctions on the country. It now gives them extra ammunition or firepower to point to their to their people who, you know, their people who, by the way, are executed on a whim where the press is uh, suppressed, but he can now point to them and say, look at the United States, I told you, they're just blunderous fools. That, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so it's, it's less, it's a, um, Donald J. Trump has descended to a level that is now legitimizing uh, Donald J. Trump and his similar blustering and his administration, frankly, with the folks supporting him who are, who are equally inept to just, uh, um, you know, moderately less vocal because they don't have his mouthpiece. The same kind of bluster towards uh, ISIS, for example, what they've done is they've, they've effectively legitimized ISIS. They've effectively uh, created a recruiting field day uh, every time they 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 um, go out on a limb just to, uh, for the sake of it. So so yeah. So so to answer your question, yes, they've they've, they've legitimized and provided a lot of fuel to the North Korean regime. So uh, you know we we've talked a little bit about the makeup of the national security apparatus and the importance of engaging each stakeholder in that process as we define what America's position is in the world. Um, we've talked also a lot about um, how the the level of the rhetoric has caught even our own military uh, at home, our own partners, our own brethren off guard, and how that's a little dangerous for, for um, goading North Korea's leadership along. Um, but one of the reasons that we're really excited to have Kevin Sammy here with us today is that as a former speechwriter in the Obama administration and as a former speechwriter for one of the very cabinet members uh, in the president's cabinet who is thinking about these issues right now, um, you know, the Secretary of Defense, you had a unique purview into how, um, even if it was under another president, how we use our voice as a nation to define America abroad. So earlier you had mentioned that um, a very, very important distinction between open societies and closed societies. So I would assume part of the rhetoric that we push out, whether you're the Secretary of State, whether you're the ambassador to the UN, whether you're the president of the United States and so forth, um, has to deal with signaling a certain type of value system, um, a democratic ideal, one in which there are free and open societies and fair elections um, and, and brands that are, or sorry, values that are derivative of that. Um, but another element of being American is something that you mentioned earlier, which is positioning ourselves and reminding the rest of the world that we are a preeminent military might um, and that that power, while we don't always want to flex it just for flexing sake, is important for the rest of the nation to understand as um, a bit of a carrot and stick approach, right? That there is some, right. some muscle behind why we're saying the things that we're saying, even though we subscribe to the values behind what we're saying, there is some muscle if we want to enforce it in a meaningful way, right? That's, Absolutely. And so I guess I, I wanted to ask you, you know, on this uh, podcast, we like to talk about levels of Americanism as they've been defined traditionally and as they're evolving or being thrown off uh, currently. And so typically, would you say that it is American enough when we're talking about 
ourselves to the rest of the world to talk about ourselves as loud, powerful people? Um, or is it American enough to talk about ourselves as those vested in the democratic outcomes of multiple people weighing in on a topic and crowdsourcing public uh, policy? Um, what does it mean when you, when you craft the words to talk about the rest of uh, about the U.S. to the rest of the world, as Donald Trump does every morning at 5 a.m. via Twitter. How do, you, how do you define what is American enough when you're trying to reconcile all these different values? Yes, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I, I am uh, I, I'm remembering a an experience I had with the Secretary of Defense as I was part of his entourage traveling abroad and and uh, I think it really sums up what's American, what's American enough in this case. And it's something Teddy Roosevelt said, and it's it's also a uh, 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 the official motto, if I could say, of the USS Teddy Roosevelt, a nuclear-powered warship that uh, we have sailing in the South China Sea right now. Uh, and it is speak softly, but carry a big stick. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a sentiment that our country has. Uh, after the last world war, our country has has threaded and has it's a needle that that the United States has threaded uh, pretty well, pretty well. Um, you know, I think the the reaction to the the kind of uh, Cheney Rumsfeld orchestrated uh, quagmire in the Middle East, fifteen year war, et cetera, et cetera, which is its own string of podcasts, I'm sure, in terms of a subject yeah. matter. Um, it, that. The, the reason that felt so off kilter was because it was a deviation of 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 that sentiment speak softly but carry a big stick and so um you know to me uh the the act of of putting words on paper for someone like the secretary of defense going through all the clearance channels through policy shops through experts who in the intelligence community who were abroad who would look at words that were going into press releases would would check out text when it came to uh, discussing topics about nuclear weapons in Iran and, and sensitive areas that kind of thing it's enormous uh, you know the department of defense is literally the biggest organization on the face of the planet right just to give you an idea of scale um, sure. That process, that process was not a process informed by how blustery can we be. It wasn't a process that said, "Hey, don't forget, we have this many guns in, you know, this many more guns than the bad guy." Right? It was a process that very much tried to thread that needle. Um, uh, we will espouse to the values, the ideals that built this country, because that's what we stand for. But at the same time, you know, if you mess with our allies, our friends, if you mess with us, you know. Uh, uh, be assured that that um, you know we will stand strong in our positions, right? And that requires a level of of um, of basically fortitude to not go off the rails, if you will. That that is where that power lies in in, in our stance as a country. So, yeah, I would I would echo Teddy Roosevelt's sentiment as as what's American enough, and and I think you'll you would clearly find the contrast between that and what. Uh, 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 Donald Trump and his administration are, are doing and saying, um, and you know, boy, if we could, uh, how far from the tree we've fallen, uh, uh, if you will, uh, when it comes to Republican like Teddy Roosevelt and and whatever this administration is. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's. Uh, I'm glad you referenced our allies earlier because um, part of however we define. Um, you know, forget if they're American ideals, but democratic ideals, virtues of an open society, virtues of a civic participation uh, among the masses and an open and fair and 
and and free from pro- persecution press that can govern uh, cover the stories that our, our leaders offer the world. Um, separate from those values, there's another element to how American American rhetoric um, shapes the world around us, and that is those allies that agree with us or don't, right? Our friends in other countries um, and the geopolitic, the geopolitical landscape that gets shaped by that. Uh, you know, when we think about this situation, it's easy to see this as uh, one of the biggest tests the United States has faced by way of an adversary, but also in terms of our nuclear stockpile. But it could just as readily be a test for China as well. Isn't that right? That um, this is in defiance of, of the relationship that North Korea has had with China and that this sort of begs the question of how um, China would or wouldn't get involved in any type of military intervention. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the, the short answer is yes, and and uh, just extrapolating on that, you know, we are we are not a a world of uh, uh, measured uh, binary rivalries. We, this is a web. Uh, there are relationships and alliances and and uh, you know existing inertia and that that manifests in so many different complex ways around the world. I mean, uh, China absolutely is. Positioning themselves um, advantageously in the wake of a a bumbling American uh, uh, coherence, yeah, and and they're doing that not just with North Korea, they're doing that in the South China Sea. I mean, if one thing is has been hopeful, it's that the American military uh, is so um, uh, capable, it is so able that it's it, that the institutions of of the United States, such as the military, are 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 so good that. Even someone like Donald Trump, with his ineptitude, can't can't by himself make them crumble. And so, so you see that manifest actually in pretty helpful ways with a leader like General McMaster, who's who swept in after again Team Trump just dropped the ball left and right. So they, they called on somebody who's a proven war fighter, who's been you know he's he's a he's a patriot. He's somebody who, uh, regardless of parties, uh, strives to do the right thing. And he's he's come in as as Donald Trump's national security advisor. And I guarantee you is is pulling. Uh, uh, the the elected decision makers away from their their sort of nonsensical positions, um, and and so there's a helpful correction mechanism there. But uh, to get back on topic of what you're saying, another interesting example here is is Europe. So you have so uh, the UK by itself with its own kind of Trumpian. Uh, um, uh, uh, realization with Brexit has is doing something to to European alliances within Europe itself that's that has a sim, similar uh, domino effect. But uh, Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric around NATO and just around alliances generally has uh, absolutely emboldened Vladimir Putin and Russia on on um, Europe's eastern flank. Right, so we're talking about a, a part of the world where a Russian uh, surface-to-air missile shot down a civilian jet that was carrying, you know, AIDS relief workers for Christ's sake, right? So uh, uh, it, it's already a volatile situation, and and he is absolutely emboldened. I mean, we saw a movement of of military assets to the eastern flank uh, um, after the election, et cetera. So uh, yeah, and- Russian assets. That is. So so anyway, it, it's a bigger picture that that that's being affected from all sides. It absolutely is, and I think that's. Sort of what the the real core of uh, of this conversation um, is going to drive, and that is a shift that's going to occur from all this rhetoric in a way that 
we describe what is American enough by way of messaging to the rest of the world is just the makeup of our of our allies. Um, you had mentioned NATO, and uh, famously, within the last um, couple of months, I believe in uh, just in a foreign trip that he took in July, uh, President Trump uh, did not endorse Article Five um, at his first trip to Europe at, um, as president at the NATO summit. And um, you know, Article Five, of course, being the the sort of the, the the kind of blood and love clause of of the NATO agreement, in which we insist we look out for each of our allies. Um, he subsequently um, endorsed NATO's Article Five in a speech in Poland, uh, but of course, he sort of anchored this in a call for our allies to spend more money on their defense. So leave it to um, the author of The Art of the Deal to make uh, a commitment to our allies rooted in a financial transaction. But this concept of alliances um, is could really shift if that rhetoric continues to shift around the world. Um, in particular, I'd like to get your thoughts. The, the current concept of nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear weaponry and the way that it sort of held the world together um, since World War II has been this concept of mutually assured destruction that, you know, if you launch a nuke and I launch a nuke, then we're just wiping ourselves off here uh, of the planet. And what good does that really do anything? Um, I think Mahatma Gandhi may have said it more poetically when he characterized an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. But in this instance, um, nuclear deterrence as a foreign policy doctrine for the United States um, is 100% rooted in our allies knowing how and when we want to flex that nuclear muscle, correct? And, and so I guess my question is, how do you actually square a, if you are one of an American ally and you're hearing rhetoric and you're hearing that your president didn't even consult um, your 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 military brass or even your diplomatic brass and how you want to talk about your nuclear arsenal. Um, what do you do if you're an ally of the United States, if you're Japan, if you're South Korea, if you're Germany? Um, do you have to shift this in any way or is this pretty par for the course in terms of having someone speak out of one side of their mouth to the world in one way and then speak to their allies um, in, in closed doors another way? It's it's such a, that is such an important question, Vikram, and it's one that uh, unfortunately, with a, a a you know a, a media that kind of skews towards sensationalism for all the the, the reasons we know, uh, it's a question that isn't being explored, and it should be because I think it's it's one of the biggest questions we all need to ask ourselves, and we all need to worry be worried about uh, how it's answered. And so the again, your question being. How do allies, or frankly anybody, but particularly allies, now adjust themselves based on on this kind of nonsensical rhetoric from the U.S. presidency? Um, it, it, that's that adjustment is happening in real time. So I can give you I can give you kind of not a real anecdote, but just a hypothetical here. Yeah. Um, you know, you have there there are uh, a inordinate amount of attaches from the State Department or uh, military liaisons uh, to everyone from the, the, the Egyptian Air Force to uh, the the Japanese Navy uh, to uh, you know um, the, the Joint Operations Center in in in, uh, in Korea, which is basically the 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 demilitarized zone between the quote unquote active war uh, in in uh, Korea uh, between North and South Korea. So for your listeners who aren't already aware. 
uh, they, they're technically just in a truce. The war is not not over. So these are you know volatile situations. Uh, so these are really volatile areas. And so for uh, the folks on the ground who are being supported directly, and in a lot of cases, predominantly their power comes from American military support. They already have an infrastructure and a chain of of uh, connections with the American uh, military and, and diplomatic apparatus and intelligence apparatus where applicable that is not President Donald J. Trump. So what's happening now is actually a shift away. So this is an oversimplification. uh, So I want to make that clear. It's an oversimplification. However, what's happening now is a shift away from taking the word of the White House or the U.S. president as legitimate. So I want to say that again. So that's what's happening here is that the that the Oval Office, the White House, the U.S. president, the the, the White House press secretary, uh, the president's aides, these folks who otherwise are, are should be the principal mouthpieces and representation of the pinnacle of American power and expression, especially when it comes to the military, are not being taken seriously or legitimately at all. So we had a situation happen recently where President Trump tweeted something um, uh, about transgenders not being allowed to serve in the U.S. military. The U.S. military then turned around in a short amount of time to say basically what the president tweeted is inaccurate in the way it was conveyed. So what you have there is, uh, in one particular instance, the American military compensating for an incapable president. That is a direction that that is so the legitimacy now is 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 sourced from from the Pentagon's press statement, not the president, right? So that that self uh, sabotage by Donald Trump that of of the in the inertia of American power, that undermining of of American power, that that's the question of of where do we go from here? What happens now? Um, you know, if he wins again, we're talking about a generation, uh, you know, a, a young kid who grows up in a world where the American president is 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 uh, less uh, um, uh, capable than than uh, um, you know his his or her kindergarten teacher kind of thing, uh, and and so it, it's uh, it, it's the question that allies are are, are now uh, finding their own answers in terms of other represent representatives of the American government. Right, because it's in, in put another way, and t- correct me if this is a right characterization of your statements, but um, it's not enough that the president says one thing and that just sort of changes the dynamics of of the course of American policy. You have layers upon layers of um, career diplomats that are working, you know, hand in hand with an individual we may never hear the name of, but might be a fellow foreign service officer um, in his or her government in Egypt, or might be negotiating a deal um, of a trade relation variety with a, a country in South America. And we have intelligence staffers that are trading information based off of these close alliances. And if we have a splintered American government within its own house of the administration and a splintered um, military from you know trying to back away or clean up the messes that its own commander in chief is making and then on top of that a splintered sense of rhetoric that we're beaming to the rest of the world about how America stands and what it stands for, sort of negating years and years and generations, frankly, of foreign policy doctrine, then at that point, we start to actually shift the tides of whether or not our alliances even want to show up and have our back anymore. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the unfortunate very dangerous truth is the presidency still retains a lot of final say power uh, or just a lot of power generally. So even if, you know, the, the, 
the unfortunate reality of a of an illegitimate uh, a president that is not legitimately uh, not taken seriously. I should say an illegitimate presence. Um, he also he still retains legitimate power. So so yes to your your question, but it also leaves us with this really scary situation where you know his finger is on the proverbial uh, you know uh, trigger uh, when it comes to some some really um, uh, scary possible scenarios that are that are uh, you know the one thing a friend of mine said recently, which is true, is every scandal so far in the Trump White House has been self created. So I, I am really. It, not uh, looking forward to the first, uh, you know, outside uh, sourced uh, uh, scandal, or I shouldn't say scandal. I should say um, just, uh, you know, God forbid, there's there's an attack or there's a there's a threat that's that's uh, uh, feels legitimate. Frankly, the, the the Guam rhetoric from the North Korean regime is something that we have not seen in, in years, which I'm sure your 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 right. listeners know and, and you would agree with. So that's the kind of situation where you're like, well. Yeah, you know, at the end of the, if he says go, we somebody's going to go, and and what does that mean? As as the North Korean leader has uh, directly said that he would point his uh, nuclear uh, ballistic missile capacity at Guam. Um, it also raises the immediate test for President Trump as to whether the U.S. would attempt to intercept that intercontinental ballistic missile um, or warhead using our uh, missile defense system that it has stationed at Guam. Which, to your point sets us up uh, specifically for some warfare that I don't I'm not sure if the 63 million people who voted for this president necessarily signed up for. Kevin, right. thanks for being with us uh, as a as a former speechwriter at the Pentagon and communications advisor to um, elected officials of, of various capacities. Um, we appreciate your insights and, and we thank you for sharing your thoughts today. It's really wonderful to be with you, Vikram. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.